Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, just want to issue a quick reminder about the Other People app. This podcast has its own app. The app is free. It's the Other People app. It's free. It's available at the app store of your choice. Get the free Other People app on your device, and when you do, you'll have access to the most recent 50 episodes of the podcast free of charge. 50 episodes for free. And then if you want access to everything, if you want to stream the archives, you can sign up for Other People Premium right there within the app. It's very easy. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. You can hear my conversations with writers like Sheila Hetty, George Saunders, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Tom Parada, Jonathan Lethem, Susan Orlean. The list goes on. So go get the Other People app. The app itself is free. Also, today's episode of the program is brought to you by Litbreaker, an online advertising network for culture vultures, people who love books, art, music, movies, television, you name it. Do you want to reach these people? Do you have a message you would like to send to people like this? Advertise on the Litbreaker ad network online. Go to litbreaker.com for more information. It's an advertising network for influential nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is something you can distract yourself with. This is a good way to pretend like you're being social. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. My guest today is Kate DeSherry. Her new novel is called The Fine Art of Fucking Up. It's available now from Unnamed Press. Had a great talk with Kate. You're going to be hearing uh, that in just a minute. Uh, before we get started, I do have some news. thought I would share some news with you. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be featured in the LA Weekly this week. I believe the issue comes out tomorrow. Uh, I have been chosen as one of LA Weekly's People of 2015. It's true. Uh, you know, like the LA Weekly, it's like the local weekly here in town. And it has an annual People issue. And they pick, you know, a handful of local residents who uh, in the aggregate deliver a representative sampling of what the city is like in any particular year. I don't know how else to describe it, but you know what I'm saying. And this year 
I am one of uh, LA's people. I was interviewed by a reporter and I was photographed. Uh, this, this, this didn't happen at the same time. It was two separate, you know, appointments. I had to go be interviewed at a coffee shop uh, about my uh, podcast, my life. I don't remember anything that I said. The other thing that's weird is that the reporter didn't have a voice recorder. He was just writing everything down like shorthand. And the only thing I can recall saying was something to the effect of, uh, nobody starts a podcast when they're on a winning streak. <laughs> that should be my epitaph. If I die soon and that like this really is the pinnacle of my professional life, put that on my tombstone. I want to be the first human being in history to have the word podcast on his tombstone. Uh, and then I did this, you know, this, uh, f- you know, uh, this photographer came out to my house to take my picture. That's not my favorite thing. Having my picture taken. I'm not a natural in front of the camera. Uh, I think my dog Walter is going to wind up in the shot in the LA weekly. Like, uh, the guy took a bunch of different, uh, photos, some of which were me by myself. Others included my dog. And, uh, you know, it was better to have my dog in there. It's like a security blanket made me feel better. Took some of the focus off of me. I feel like they'll do the one with the dog. I could be wrong. So keep an eye out. It should be online. And if you're in Los Angeles, you can pick it up at your newsstand. Uh, I also thought uh, it would be nice to uh, let my mom know since uh, she's not aware of this. So I'm going to call my mom, let her know that I'm about to appear in the newspaper. I don't get very many opportunities to uh, let my mom know that I've done something right. So let me get her on the phone if I can. Hello. Mom. Yes. It's your son. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm good. I just wanted to let you know uh, some news. Okay, what's that? Uh, I've been chosen by the LA Weekly as one of uh, LA Weekly's people of 2015. Oh, you're kidding. Well, that's exciting. That's so, wonderful. So I think I'm successful now. <laughs> oh, that is terrific, Brad. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'm so excited for you. Do you know what the LA Weekly is? Um, I'm assuming it's a it's a magazine that promotes different people in the LA area and their different (laughs) uh, job. Brad, are you you kidding me? (laughs) No, no, I'm serious. I'm it's I'm in the LA Weekly. I'm a person. They've chosen me as a person of of 2015. Oh, that is really exciting. I'm really excited for this. That's wonderful. uh, They sent out a photographer and everything. I got my picture. My picture is going to be in the LA Weekly. Oh, well, do I get one? I don't know. I'm not going to. I want one. I got to have this. I think Walter Walter might be in the picture, too. (laughs) With the whole family in this? No, just me and Walter. Just you and Walter? Oh, that's wonderful, Brad. Congratulations. That's great. I I wanted to let you know, because I I don't have the opportunity to... uh, to share these kinds of things with you very often, but I feel like I, like maybe this could be a big thing for me now that I'm a person of uh, Los Angeles for the year of 2015. Oh, well, that's very exciting. Well, are we on a podcast? Yeah. Well, that's exciting. <laughs> I'm happy for you. Do you listen to my podcast? Have you ever heard it? I have. I haven't listened recently, but yes, I have listened in the past. I have. What made you stop? Yeah. Was it just too much to hear me talk and... No, I no. It's just like you know, you're out about. You don't get a chance to do it. But um, 
I have to get back doing that because I enjoy listening to you. I do. Right. I really do. What are you up to? What are you, but, what are you doing right now? What am I doing? I'm I'm studying bridge rules. <laughs> what? I'm trying to to make. Well, I'm trying to learn how to play bridge because it's good for the mind. Oh right! Except it's driving me crazy because there's so much to learn. Wait, so but, like this, um, it helps you uh, keeps you from like having dementia? Is that what it does? Yeah, <laughs> that's one way to put it. Yeah, right. no, I just like to learn something new, and it stretches your mind. And so I'm taking it up, but it's a lot to learn. Right. Well, so just, that's I, what I'm doing. Well, I just wanted to let you know the news, just so I didn't want you to be blindsided in case uh, your phone starts ringing off the hook tomorrow. Well, I can't wait. I hope it does. Yeah. I'd be the proud mother. I'd be thrilled. Everything's going to everything's going to change. Well, I hope it does. And I want I want a copy of this. Okay. My famous son in the LA. What is LA Weekly? Yeah, I'm a person of 2015. You are a person of 2015. I'm so glad they finally realized that. All right. Well, it's good. <laughs> I'm so. Pr- Seriously, I'm really excited for you, honey. That's uh, wonderful. All right, Mom. I'm really excited. Right. Well, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good talking to you. I love you. I love you, too. All thanks right. for calling, sweetie. All Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. All right. So uh, there's my mom, Peggy. Peggy Listy. You guys, has she ever been on this program before? I don't think I've ever had her on that I can recall. Or it's if I have, it's been a long time. So uh, good to talk to her. Glad to make her proud. Though, uh, I, I don't think she's ever heard my show, <laughs> which, you know what? It's fine. I don't even want people I'm related to, to listen to this show. I feel like it's harder to actually know me and then listen to this show. It's better if you don't know me at all. And I'm just some disembodied voice. Hey, do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Right now, listeners of the Other People podcast can get 33% off of any purchase from Tweaked Audio. Just go to tweakedaudio.com. And enter the offer code other people O T H E R P P L. Get some headphones. Thirty three percent off. Tweakedaudio.com. Uh before we get going, I do have some mail. I got a letter from a listener named Jake who says, Dear Mr. Listy, your novel attention deficit disorder is next in my to read pile. I tracked it down after being a fan of the show for the past six months. Unfortunately, I'm currently reading Infinite Jest, which I'm halfway through after one month, so it may be a while. Just wanted to let you know I have such faith in your book that I'm using it as a follow-up to DFW's classic. Thanks for the podcast. Keep it coming. I listen to it here in Australia. It gives a closer perspective on American literature than is otherwise available here. Kind regards, Jake. So, what do you say to that? (laughs) Thanks, Jake, first of all, for the kind words. But I'm telling you, uh, and this is not this is not uh, unwarranted self-deprecation. Reading my book after reading Infinite Jest is like watching the movie uh, Teen Wolf immediately after like watching uh, like Apocalypse Now or like Citizen Kane. Just want to warn you. Hey everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature. I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. 
He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest is Kate DeSherry. Her new novel, her uh, debut novel, is called The Fine Art of Fucking Up. It is out there now from Unnamed Press. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Kate DeSherry, and her novel, one more time, is called The Fine Art of Fucking Up. Iowa City is a small town. It's it's um, it's pretty all-American. It's pretty standard. Your parents in academia? No. My father is a surgeon and my mother is a teacher. Okay. It's a, mm-hmm. It seems like I mean, it's an insane place to live. Is I, it's easy. The cost of living is good. Exactly. It's easy. The cost of living is good. You know, um, I've recently been in some larger cities, and what I've found is that the logistics of my life are very simple, um, which allows me time. It gives me more free time, I find, than... I would otherwise have, I think. And not, like not just free time for creative, but like free time to just like sit on your ass and like just enjoy your life. Yeah. And just to get to get from one place to another and to, um, yeah, to manage to manage whatever the sort of day to day things that have to happen in your life. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, also just to to sit around, to play with my kids, to read books, to do whatever, whatever it is I'm going to do. Right. And your folks still live there? My mother lives here in Iowa City. My father lives in Des Moines, Iowa, where he has been most of my life. Oh, okay. So he's, yeah. uh, your parents are, are not together. They are not together. They were divorced when I was, I think, in kindergarten. All right. But they're, yeah. still, but they're still close. No. I mean, physically, sort of, yeah, yes. I, I just mean physically close to you. Like, you live in Iowa City. You have access, yeah. you have access to family. Which yes. Is, okay. Yep. All right. That's good. That's rare. Usually I feel like everybody I talk to has got these disparate, you know, situations. I know. I never thought it'd end up back here, but now here I am and I'm very glad for it. What kind of ki- what kind of kid were you growing up? Um, I was shy. I I think for the for, for the first year I was in school when I was in kindergarten, um I didn't really talk and by really didn't really talk, I mean I was I didn't say a single word inside the school building ever once. Um, your parents, were your parents worried about you? I don't know. I wouldn't know. I've asked my mom that because it's just sort of like was a part of my childhood and, um, and I never really thought about it and I outgrew it and emerged a little from my shell. Um, and recently now that I have children, I said, weren't you concerned that for, for the first year of school when I was in kindergarten, I just didn't talk to anyone ever, not including my teacher. I would only blink. <laughs> And she's like, I don't know, you know, I mean, you talk to us at home and you seem fine and the te- you loved school. You just were super shy and you, yeah, you just never talked. So I don't think she was worried. She was really busy. She was in the middle of a divorce. She, we, I'm one of 
four kids and we're within five years. So she had a lot going on. Oh my God. Yeah. So um, any twins? No, just four babies in five years, four kids in five years. Lord almighty. Yeah. 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 So, um, so I started, I think, you know, I understand I have two kids and, and I I can't imagine having double that and trying to worry about one who was selectively mute. At school. That's probably, she's probably like, great. The quieter, the better. I got three other guys screaming <laughs> exactly. at me. Exactly. You're like not it. causing any problems. I like this. Cool. Nothing's yeah. going on. I love this mute kid. This mute yeah. kid's great. <laughs> yeah. So I was shy. Yeah. All right. So you're, you're quiet. I mean, like so far the profile fits, right? <laughs> exactly. You're shy. You blink at your teacher. Uh-huh, you're, uh-huh. You're, you're quietly smart. You understand everything, but say nothing. <laughs> exactly. You see, you see deeply into people, but don't reveal yeah. what you see. Is that what I'm was... watching everything so yeah. I can later use it in fiction. Were you, uh, were you picked on? No, I wasn't picked on. I mean, um, you know, as I got older, I kind of outgrew some of that shyness and I had two older brothers who were immediately ahead of me in school. So they paved the way. All my teachers kind of knew me as I got older. I had two brothers in high school, juniors and seniors when I started. So they, you know, they sort of broke everything in for me, um, and made it much easier. All right. Yeah. That's kind of nice to have a couple of older brothers looking out for you. <laughs> yeah. Were they protective? And they were, you know, they were protective in an, in a nice way. I don't think they, they, they went through some phase of threatening boyfriends, you know, when I was like 13 or something, but, um, for the most part, they were just, um, I was never, they, I was never that brother. I have a little sister and I got to say, like, I mean, I was, I guess I had some sense of protectiveness, but I was never the, like, you know, stay away from my sister. You, know, you weren't. No, I didn't do any of that. Were you guys close? Yeah, I mean, in our way, we're four years different, uh, four yeah. years apart. But yeah, I just never, I never had that feeling of like I'm going to kick somebody's ass. No, know? I mean, I think they postured. You know, it was fun. It was sort of like the role they were expected to play, sort of thing, and so they did it. But um, but I don't think that they um, ever re- like they're not. You know, they're nonviolent people. They were never actually going to do that. <laughs> so, so your brothers weren't like marauding <laughs> psychopaths, is what you're saying. No. <laughs> so your your dad like your dad and mom split up and then your dad moves to Des Moines almost immediately or like We no so we lived we all lived in Des Moines. All right. Um for a while together. And then uh we lived in Iowa City. We grew up in Iowa City. When we moved to Des Moines, my dad uh my dad was a resident here in Iowa City and he started the job in Des Moines at what the kind, Iowa Clinic. What kind of surgeon is he? He is a neurosurgeon. All right. Okay. Yeah. Um so we, they, they all reloc- we all reloc- relocated to Des Moines for his, for his job there. And then after, I think, a year, year and a half, my mom and my brothers and I came back to Iowa City. All right. Your mom liked Iowa City. Yeah, she liked Iowa City. We'd been in school. My brothers had been in school here. We had a house um, that we hadn't, she hadn't sold, so it was rented, so we could come immediately back to it, which we did. Um, and that's the house I grew up in. All right. And then so you and so you enjoyed it. You were, you know, once you started talking, once you became <laughs> once, once I became you, verbal, once you became verbal, you started making some friends and then yeah. you're a good student. Yeah. You grabbed me. And were you a writer from the start? No, 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 not at all. I wasn't a writer from the start. You know, it never even occurred to me that that was a real thing that a real person could do, I think. Um, and that, not for a long time. It, it, I was a reader, you know, I was but I was mostly um, introverted and um and then in college, I studied political science, and it, it just never occurred to me. I mean, I liked reading. I liked fiction, obviously, but um, I don't know. It didn't seem – it just seemed so far-fetched that I could actually do something like write write anything or write a book. I just was a reader. Right. So um, you, so you, uh, you get through high school. You never had any big problems. You didn't ever, uh, you know, like rebel or go crazy. You no. seem, you seem pretty level-headed. 
I, and I, and I didn't have a lot of restrictions placed on me. And, um, and so I didn't really have, I didn't really have much need for rebellion. And I was always close with my mom and my brothers and like, you know, we loved each other and hung out together. Right. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not my most interesting story. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm fishing for some sort of, <laughs> I know. Like, I, I don't really, do you have a good relationship with your dad? Yeah, I you do. do. Yeah. Um, I do. And especially as, you know, I've gotten older and, um, see him more and now I have kids. It's, it's fun to see him with my kids. And so, yeah, he's, he's good. He's around a fair amount. And so you, uh, you decide to go to Portland for college. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So I spent a summer in Boston and decided I did not want to go to the East coast for college, but I wanted to go somewhere far away or something different or, you know, I, I was ready for, I was seeking an adventure. I was setting out, um, and so I looked at the, on the West Coast, I looked West Coast and I had some family in Portland and I visited Portland and loved Portland and um, got into Lewis and Clark College. And so I went there. That was it. Portland, that was it. Portland is uh, like a literary hub for sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, it has a sort of, I felt a similar kind of feel to Iowa City. I mean, kind of, it's not exactly a, a direct comparison, um, but it was, but it's a bigger city and, but it's, people are nice and it's really welcoming. There's stuff to do and yeah um yeah it's, so up, it's it. up and coming i feel like it it's, might it might already be like a past it's uh you know it's, it's uh peak like coolness and now it's, it's starting to become like overwrought or something. i know it's like it's like a joke how cool it is it's super cool yeah but i know you were, but you were there before you, you were yeah there. it's like it's like i saw that band when they were just playing in clubs like <laughs> no no i, I was already was already cool and they did not want they did not want me or anyone else moving there it was they wanted to keep it that's so keep stupid. It small. I hate when people do that. Like, oh, don't don't come to don't come to my place. This yeah. place that I came to too. Yeah. But don't come yeah, here because yeah. it's don't mine. Come here. Yeah, yeah, whatever. That's ridiculous. So, uh, <laughs> your book is called "The Fine Art of Fucking Up." Yes. And you don't see, you don't seem to have ever fucked up. When have you fucked up? I want to. Oh know. God, I fucked up left and right, especially as an adult. It was like when there actually were consequences and and it mattered. That's when I started to really fuck some things up. Well, let's give me some big ones. Come on, um, lay it on me. Okay. I mean, some of my well, I mean, there's. There's a, there's a few basic ones. Um, like I, I've been recently telling this to people because, um, it's come up that, uh, that I took, that I took three different grad schools to finally pick the one I was going to go to. So I, um, I transferred, I went to three different MFA programs before I finally By settled way, in one. This is the nerdiest fucking up I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, okay. It's also one of the more expensive ones. Yeah. I accrued a fuck ton of debt. Um, by taking twice as long in grad school as I probably needed to. So which, um, which, what were the three schools? That so I started at Nebraska and university of Nebraska at a low residency program there. And I did, I did a year, a full year there. And then I decided that wasn't going to work. And then other things were going on simultaneously. Like I was getting divorced. That probably is a pretty good one. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah. That's juicier. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so did you get married young? I got married at, um, 20, I was 24. That's young. Yeah, it's, it's, it's young, young. For our generation, or I, I don't even know if you're in my generation, but it's young these days. It's young. It's young. It was young. Um, yeah, I got married to uh, an Italian guy. Um, <laughs> okay, now we're talking. Uh, so let me ask you this, like not to, uh-huh. not to psychoanalyze it too much, but like as a child of divorced parents, I sometimes feel like when you become of age, there is like a desire to sort of rectify maybe or like to like do it right. Did yeah. You have, did you have that? Like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to live this life of adventure. I'm going to marry this Italian guy. And I'm going to show you what love is or anything. Like no, that. no, 
It wasn't that. It was, I mean, God, this is going to be so boring because it's all just like these sort of practical things. No, I mean, I met someone and I was living in China. I was teaching there. I met this guy, this Italian guy. Um, and what we, was, what was his name? Can you tell his me name that? was, his name was, his name is Giorgio and it oh, remains no. Giorgio. It was and is Giorgio. <laughs> um, and I'm seeing, yeah. I'm seeing a very handsome man right now in my head. Just whatever like you're picturing. I it's accurate. Okay. It, it's, it's, he looks like an Italian guy named Giorgio. Sure. Um, and he, we, he, we wanted to, you know, we wanted to have a relationship and that is complicated to do, um, unless you want to live in China. And he had, he wanted to go to school and do some other things. And so we, um, we ended up moving back to Iowa and after a few months we decided to get married. And so we did, um, in the, in the courthouse in Iowa City, Iowa to, to, the maybe not delight of some people in my immediate family, but <laughs> what was that? Like, because yeah, it's just like the cult, bridging a cultural divide is tough. And like, it, yeah. Having one of the, you know, one of the parties in the relationship is going to wind up inevitably having to live, um, in a country that is not their own. Yeah. And that can be a stress <laughs> because you don't, it's hard to feel like yourself until you really become fluent and enculturated. Yeah. And it takes a long time. And I found, you know, the, 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 so he was the one living in the United States, which he had lived abroad for a long time, um, in a bunch of different countries and spoke a bunch of different languages and was sort of, you know, um, the kind of person who's available to that sort of experience. And, and, but I found that it was like this, it was the same way for me just because I didn't speak Italian very well. And, um, and, and, you know, I couldn't communicate with his family very well. And I just, where was he from in Italy? Uh, he was from uh, uh, near Milan. Okay, and then Italy. suddenly he's in Iowa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Suddenly, and then suddenly he's in. Well, and he had been, you know, he had not really been home for a long time. He had been in the UK and other places, and then he was in China for a couple of years, and then now he's in Iowa, which is even more. Like it's funny. Like Iowa was probably more, like <laughs> more of a culture shock to him than like China. Yeah. <laughs> In some ways, I being in the middle of Iowa City probably was. A vi- we have a very we have we have sort of an international community because of the university, but um, you know it's pretty it's it's pretty just boring and white and here and that. <clears throat> I mean, I shouldn't say that. I love it here. It's not boring. It's great, but it's it was a culture shock for him for sure. Yeah. But he was in school. He was in school and he was busy. Um, and I think he was very glad for the opportunity to come here and go to school so you were and you, while this was all happening you were doing your graduate school thing. no so well first i know i hadn't you know what i was 24 and about to be 25 and i hadn't even really started writing yet um okay i i was working you know i got a job at a bank and he was in school and i was trying to figure out what the hell i wanted to do and i imagined i would be here for a short time and um and I had written a bunch of stuff while I was in China. Like I had, I had sort of recorded all these stories that were happening to me as a way to communicate with my family because um, I didn't have a very good phone access or anything. So I was emailing my family and. Um, Wait, where were and you? Just, where were you in China? Where I was in a city called Dalian. Where I don't even know where that is. What is mm-hmm. it? It's northeast. It's near. It's like um, it's about an hour or so flight from Beijing. So maybe a couple hundred miles. And it's it's nobody's ever heard of it, but it's six million people. <laughs> Right. It's not a small city. Uh, no, it is. For China, it's a small town. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Small For China, it's, yeah, it's mid-small. Mid it's just teeming with six million people. Yeah. 
Yes. So you you're uh, you've you were writing stories about that experience. Yeah, just what was going on there, just to keep in touch with my family. Um, and I sort of realized at the end of that time that I liked doing that, and I had read a lot because I didn't have any access to any really anything else to do. I mean, I didn't, you know, I had a TV that was all in Chinese and I didn't really have movies or a computer or anything really. So, um, I would write, write by hand all these stories that happened and once a day or so go to an internet cafe and send emails to my family. Um, and by the time I came home, I sort of realized, oh, I just spent a year basically reading and writing and I loved it. And, and it took me a while to kind of figure that out or figure out that that was a thing that I wanted to do. Um, well, it's interesting that you talk about this because I feel like when you're in an, uh, a different country and you're not uh, speaking, the, I don't even know, do you speak Chinese? I mean, I took, you know, I took introductory Mandarin when I was there just so I could get around, but no, let's say no. Okay. So, you know, you're totally uh, cut off in, in a way and yeah. you're sort of forced into yourself and you're clearly an outsider. It's a good way to... Uh, find yourself writing, you know, you're cut, yeah. cutting yourself off from possibilities for distraction or entertainment yeah. that you would, you wouldn't have here in the States. Yeah. Yeah. And I think or, a lot of people do that deliberately, um, when they're trying to pursue anything creative. I should say that you would have here in the States. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like yeah. You, you, you do that. And then when you, you start to realize this about yourself, you come back, uh, to, you make a triumphant return from China with your yes. Italian boyfriend. <laughs> God, yeah. Just, I mean, like, just a conquering hero. <laughs> this is Giorgio. That's uh, how it was seen. Yeah. Yes. No. I'm picturing a parade of sorts, and like, yeah. a, your, your, and your mom making like an awkward spaghetti dinner or something. Oh yeah. So, um, so you come back and you're back in the states. You have this new direction and this like epiphany, you know, about what you want to pursue professionally. Yeah. Did you find that it was hard to recreate the level of? Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? I guess yeah. the, the amount of time you had to read and write. Like yes. You, you became immediately taken over by like uh, social media and the internet like everybody else. <laughs> um, I, yeah, well, I was, I was sort of a late comer to the internet and social media and stuff, which was, was good for me, I guess. But also I'm pretty, I'm pretty bad at it, which is not great for me. Um, but, but I think I just, you know, I got a job. I worked, like I said, I worked at a bank and I, I didn't even know where to begin to recreate I didn't have the same material, you know, I mean, I was writing just kind of stories of what happened and that was, those were my exercises, which I didn't realize was what I was doing. Um, and now I was just, you know, here and going to work and, um, and it was not, um, it, yeah, I did, I did not find that I could easily recreate it. And I honestly, I didn't even know what to do. You know, I felt like, um, you know, I've always felt this way about most things, but I needed to find a way to be productive about it. Like, how can I, how can I learn how to do this? Or, you know, I just didn't even know where to begin. And I didn't really have any fiction and I didn't know if I wanted to go to grad school or, you know, I just didn't really know. Um, I didn't know if I wanted to write nonfiction or what. I didn't really have anything to submit besides this, you know, collection of emails, has, from, has, and, <laughs> which you know, nobody wants to see. So, no, but I get it. Like, I get it because there's a freedom to that kind of writing. <laughs> like you didn't even realize what you were doing. You weren't, right. ever, it wasn't even like a, Oh, I'm going to make something of this or pursue this professionally or maybe publish this someday. Like you were writing for the pure joy of it sure. and yeah. you had all the time in the world and you were leading like just by default because you're in China and you're like a stranger in a strange land. Yeah. Uh, you're so, you're leading an interesting life. Um, yeah. you know, just, just going to the store to get some cough drops. Yeah. is like an epic adventure. And so, yeah. Yeah. you know, you have this all going for you. I imagine you must be a little nostalgic looking back 
on that period of your writing life, just the innocence of it and the freedom? Yeah. I mean, do you ever sit, sit back and like reminisce about that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was, I mean, first of all, it was a great, it was this great experience. It was this adventure. I was, I went by myself to China for a long, long time, months and months. I didn't really know anyone. Um, I didn't certainly didn't know any native English speakers. Um, and I was navigating the country by myself and I, you know, I, I'm sure I could have done things like acquired a computer and, you know, had access to the internet and a cell phone and whatever else. Um, but it just, it was just like it, the hurdles were too high. I just wasn't up for it. I was, like you said, I mean, going to the store and getting, getting anything was enough of a complication, but it was so, it was just, it was so much fun. So I was in, I was really independent. I was in this place where I was enjoying where I was and what I was doing. Um, and, and that, and that I miss just that, just like the sort of ease of that, that sort of moment of my life. Um, and, and then, yeah. And then I read books because I found an English. What were you reading? I was reading all this, like, I was reading um, like the Hunchback of Notre Dame and all this sort of older literature because I thought that was what was in English in the bookstore. It was sort of like the um, the upper level English courses at the university would be reading some of these books. You know, they read Mark Twain and they read um, just a bunch of I don't know. I, I don't remember everything now, but yeah, just a bunch of cl- more classic literature, nothing contemporary. Um yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me, like when it comes to the dissemination of literature and American literature in particular, like what makes it to the like outer reaches of China? Yeah, yeah, I, I attempted to buy some books um, and have them sent to me and that was totally unsuccessful. Um, but my dad came to visit me and he brought me a bunch of books. He brought me like some Bukowski and some other stuff. So I got I got some other stuff that would not be available. Wait, your neurosurgeon your neurosurgeon dad brought you some Bukowski to China yeah. by request yep. or did he? Yes, just, you requested <laughs> um, it. I requested it, but he is my dad is a voracious reader. He's my reader inspiration. He's read he read everything. He loves to read. It's it, he's um, and he he has a lovely library full of all kinds of things. And he'll read anything that you, that you give him. He's yeah. My parents are that way. Open minded. My, my dad in particular, you just give my dad a book and like the next day he's like, it was good. Yeah. You're like, yeah. What? Yeah. 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 I give him a pile of books for Christmas or something. And he's like, Oh yeah, I like this one. This one less, this one more. Oh, okay. You just, he'll, he'll, he'll read anything. What's, so what's uh, my problem? It takes me like a month to get a book. If I'm you've, lucky. You've, you've small children, a yeah. small child. Right. Small, yeah. Small brain. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so you're back in you're back in Iowa. Yeah, you have your Italian fiance. I have, yes. Um, and then you are working in a bank. Uh huh. Yeah. So what what happens first? The wheels come off the marriage, and then you go to grad school. Or you go to grad school, and, and the wheels come off the marriage. So I so what happens first is I I don't I do not belong in a bank. You know, you're I'm at that <laughs> point in life where. Which is also something I look back on fondly now, but was sort of a struggle at the time. I mean, I was 25, or you know, and trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I didn't. I didn't know. Maybe I want to be a banker. Let's try that. And I, it was not for me. And I just, it was like I said. I mean, I just kind of didn't know how to solve the problem of what do I want to do? How do how do I pursue something um, productively that is going to make me happy and not make me, you know, miserable? But at five o'clock at the end of the day, um, and so. The first thing that happened was I found a job um, not at a bank, at uh, the university, at an art school, and that seemed better. So I first took that, 
And then I started to talk to people. I, I had a friend from home who had done a low residency writing program and she was very helpful and gave me some information, kind of just talked me through her experience and, and helped me put together a little application. And I applied for this, for the low residency program at Nebraska, it was, you know, cause it was close and it was manageable. Um, and I started that. And then I would say, you know, around the first term of that, yeah, the, the wheels came off the marriage. I mean, you know, we were never really well suited to each other. And he's um, like, wait, now, now you want me to move to Nebraska? What the fuck? No, no, <laughs> no. So, so, so that was my other complication. I was not moving anywhere. I had to do low residency at first um, uh-huh. because, because I had to work and he was in school at the university of Iowa. Okay. Yeah. So that's, you know, that complicates things too. Um, and by the way, and, did, did it ever occur to you that like the best writing program in the country is in your hometown? It did. And I've never even, you know, I mean, first of all, you know, it's not like that's a sure thing. Um, but, but, um, at first, so the first, when I was first applying to grad schools, I was only applying to low residency because I was working full time and I, I had to, I was paying our rent. I was paying our bills. Um, my husband was, and my husband at the time was, uh, in school. He was a full-time undergraduate student. Um, and so I just, I don't know, I never did. And then, and then the wheels came off the marriage and, um, and I knew the Nebraska program, you know, it was, I just felt like I was, there was no way I was going to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish there. What do you mean? Uh, It wasn't good enough? The school wasn't good enough? Prestigious enough? No. Oh no, 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 not, not that, not at all. I just, I was writing a comedy. I wanted a comedy. Um, and I wanted to try to finish a draft of a novel during my time. You know, I felt like this is my time. I'm, it's really precious to me. these, these grad school years, because this is when, you know, I feel like I'll have help. I'll have structure. I have got, you know, I, I have to get this done. And I am like everyone, I, you know, without the structure of deadlines and homework and stuff and somebody expecting something from me, I am, I'm less productive. Um, I, I don't necessarily move it along myself as well. And so I knew that I had to take advantage of that time in grad school. Um, and I met I met Mark Haskell Smith there, who was my mentor again later, but who who was great and who was um, not he was switching teaching positions. He was going to UC Riverside's low residency program, so I knew he wouldn't be at Nebraska anymore. Um, and I just you know I just felt like I I wanted to write comedy. I wanted to write this you know this novel full of shenanigans and humor and fun and um, and I just was not finding. I don't know, maybe the the sort of connections in terms of just mentorship that I was looking for. Yeah, I mean, it's about personal relationships, ultimately. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you, so then you went to UC Riverside? No, so then the wheels came off the marriage. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the university here got did get flooded, and so my job was just, a, it just turned into a, a very a long, long days, and it was really complicated. Um, and so, so then I thought, well, now I'm going to, I'm going to move because I'm getting divorced and I, I need to get out of Iowa city at uh, this, the, the school, the place where I worked was kind of a mess. Um, and I just needed to leave. So I'm going to apply to traditional MFA programs all over the country. And I'm just going to go where I get, where I get in and where it feels right. And I got into Florida state and I got a assistantship there. So I moved to Tallahassee, Florida all right. and was there for six months. How long I left? Get me the fuck out of Florida. (laughs) Florida was not the right thing, but even more the program again for the second time. Like I said, this is sort of it's more of a fuck up than it may have sounded like. 
Um, I and yeah, I ended up in Florida at in the in the MFA program, the creative writing program there. And it was, it was not a good fit for me. Okay. So when you're going through all this stuff, cause we all do this, you know, I do this, I've done so much of this, you know, mm-hmm. not exactly this, but you know, everybody screws up. Yeah. Everybody makes bad choices in life. That's how you learn. It's a, yeah. you know, you, you try to be well adjusted about it, but when you're in the midst of it, uh, in the middle of going through it, it's hard and it can be yeah. difficult to sort of bear, fucking up you know the humiliation or you feel like a you know you feel like you're letting people down like did you ever have dark periods where you like felt like oh god like how do i explain to my family that i need to leave yeah yeah i can remember you know i mean i think i knew fairly soon after the term the semester started that it was not again it was the same sort of thing where it's a it's a place where it probably it, it was great for a lot of people but for me I just could tell I just was not going to be able to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish there. What, what do you uh, mean? Like you just needed a better teacher. You needed a mentor. Because like, you know, really all you well, need is space and time to write. But I needed a mentor. But there was other things about um, like so so I found that um, I was uh, I, I was not able to write a novel. I was I was encouraged and then more or less told that I had to write short fiction. Um, and. I didn't, I, I like writing short fiction, but that was not what I wanted to do. I, you know, I understand the pedagogy. I understand that you write short fiction because you can write a 10 or 20 or 30 page short story and you can work on it. And if it's a disaster, then you didn't just spend two years of grad school writing a piece of shit manuscript that, you know, like that's something that you can learn on. Um, and it's not going to take you all these years and all this work. And then it's going to end up being unsuccessful, you know? So that's sort of the thinking that you're in a, you're in a graduate program, you're in a workshop environment, you write short fiction, you, um, you know, you learn and you can sort of start again next story next semester and keep, you know, and keep improving and building your, you know, building your, your toolbox or whatever, you know, your writer's toolbox, all your skills. Um, and that's great. That's great. And it's great for a lot of people and it works for a lot of people. But for me, I just felt like, well, I want to write a novel. I wanted to come out of, I, it was too expensive and too time consuming for me to come out of grad school and feel like, okay, now I'm going to start writing a novel. Yeah. I, you don't, know? I don't think you can force somebody into a certain uh, form. Like, yeah. like you, cause people all the time will say, oh, you know, this novel that I wrote, it was supposed to be a short story, mm-hmm. but then it just blew up and became this other thing. Or if someone <laughs> says, I, I tried to write a novel and then lo and behold, it was just a short story. And like, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you can, I think when you start to try to shoehorn people into these things, you're doing them a disservice. Right. And so, well, so, and that's sort of what happened, which was, I was like, you know, I, I submitted the beginning of this novel that I'd been working on at Nebraska, the first program. Um, and it was, a, it was a fucking disaster. It was like the typical workshop destruction mayhem and blood everywhere because it was such a bad it was not it was just not great um and so then i then for my next have you know having to turn something in to be workshopped i had to write short fiction and it wasn't organic you know i was like okay what can i think of that that might work as a short story um and i was trying to think of i wasn't writing what i wanted to i wasn't writing what came out organically i was writing what i thought would sort of fit into a short piece of fiction and what I thought maybe my teacher wouldn't shred in front of my classmates. Um, and it was not great. And, and even more, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, so I actually did learn a ton. I learned a lot, but I just felt like, you know, I don't want to do this over and over again. I don't have that kind of time and money, you know, I'm, I'm, because then what, then you get out of grad school and you have to work full time to pay your bills. And then you're supposed to start on the actual project now that you right. are done. 
Um, and so, so, so where to next? So then I left. So then, so, but I did have what you're, what you were saying, which was those dark moments. I can remember having to call my parents and say, I, I had sold my place in Iowa. I had borrowed all this money. I had packed everything up. I had sold everything I owned. And now I was going to pack my car back up and move home. And it was just, you know, that's the worst to have to do that. Cause you do, I just felt like this is already my second program. I just drove and moved across the country to Florida. I'm, I just got divorced. I'm 20, you know, I'm 28 years old, 29 years old at this point, man. That, you, you, you ever uh, struggle with depression? Um, no, no, I didn't struggle with depression. I struggled with, you know, I struggled with like, just, just having to say, having to convince people and everyone, I mean, whoever, that even though it seems like I'm kind of fucking things up, I feel like I'm actually, you know, this is actually the right thing. And that's how I felt about my divorce too. You know, like I I got this mom. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, and, and when I was getting divorced, it was like, you know, I, I, it's the right thing to get divorced, which doesn't mean it was wrong to get married. Like this is all sort of the right thing for me. This is the right path. And even though it seems like I'm completely fucking it up, I, you know, I'm, it's actually like, this is, these are the right choices for me. Hey, whatever, um, you, whatever you need to tell yourself, Kate. I know <laughs> <laughs> it, it works. It's fine. I believe it. Oh, that's good. I mean, I think it's better. It's honestly better to think of things that way because you know what, who really knows? Yeah. And you can either look at it that way. Like, okay, these are just the choices I've made and this is the path that I'm on. And the, these are the mistakes that I must need to make in order to learn what I need to learn. Uh, or you can be like, I'm a piece of shit. I don't, yeah. you know, and you can just get down on yourself. And it doesn't sound like you did that. No, because I mean, I think I felt like I made the best choices I could with the information I had at the time, Yeah, which wasn't all the information it turns out. But, yeah. um, but you know, that was the best I could do. And then later, once I got the information, you know, what I didn't do is stay there anyway, knowing it wasn't the right program, knowing I didn't feel like I fit in the community um, and just stick it out because that would have been, you know, what, like the right thing, according to someone, no. um, which, you know, which I thought about for a while because I didn't want to have to pack my shit up and move back across the country. Right. Um, right. So this time you returned, so, to, you returned to Iowa. So City. I returned to Iowa city. No, yeah. No, my, no Italian boyfriend. <laughs> no, no, he was, he, no, he was gone. I, I meant like but, a new uh, one. You didn't. Oh, <laughs> oh, this time. So no, a less triumphant return than when you no. came. From yeah, China. it was less triumphant. It was less triumphant. I moved back, um, but it ended up being great. I mean, I moved back. I had kept in touch with Mark Haskell Smith, um, who had sort of coached me and and you know talked me through some of the things that happened when I moved to Florida. And so I applied to the low residency program at UC Riverside, and. Um, and, and I moved back to Iowa, and, and I got a job here, and um, and met and started dating somebody who I had met at the School of Art at the University of Iowa, who is now my husband. Um, and it took a while to full kind circle. of full circle. Yeah, everything, exactly. Everything came full circle. Everything came full circle, but I did have to. Yeah, I kind of crawled back to Iowa, but you know, that's that was the, that was the right move. And then. You know, now a few years later, however many years later, five, six years later, things are things are as they should be. You have your book out, okay? So <laughs> you did a low res uh, MFA at UC Riverside. Yeah. So like mm-hmm. twice a year, you go out there. Yeah. Is this the Palm Desert one? Yes. Okay, so Todd uh, Todd Goldberg. Goldberg. Yeah. Yes. I was just out there this past December. I was. Yeah. A, I did a visiting lectureship. So. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's not it's so pretty... bad. It's pretty. It's pretty. He has his own like fiefdom. I feel like Todd runs some sort of empire out there. 
He does, and he should be running an empire. That's that suits him. He's great at it. <laughs> he is born to run an empire. Yes. So yes. you're doing that, and then you working a jo- are you working back at the art school again? I was working. No, I was working um, at the university at the. T- I worked at the business manager's office um, for this terrific guy who under he, he was a man who hadn't I don't think switched paths when maybe he had felt he needed to and was. Um, a little bit disgruntled in his position as business manager and was ex- very excited about the the idea that I was pursuing something creative. Um, and so he let me work from home a lot of the time and um, and was very, very accommodating and flexible with my, you know, my creative needs. That's pretty cool. Which was incredibly, incredibly lucky and generous of him. And I don't know, you know, I don't think a lot of people come across bosses like that or... or or maybe appreciate the value of working for someone who um, regrets his life choices. <laughs> that did work out well for me. Yeah. That's the, everybody listening, try to find a disgruntled boss who regrets his life choices <laughs> and yeah. who, who can like seek, who can live vicariously through. Yeah. Your, who will uh, facilitate your other yeah, creative your, wins. Your courageous creative pursuit. Yes. <laughs> so, but like you've I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, that's a key thing for anybody who's got to earn a living while they're working creatively, you know, trying to find yeah. a job that is, um, somehow amenable to that yeah. is a tough trick. You it's, know? it's incredibly complicated. And I think it's the challenge. It's probably the challenge. I mean, other than, you know, you know, like the availability of streaming video on the internet, it's the challenge for writing to writers. I think, you know, is finding that time. And yeah, I mean, being able to like, you know, live your life, so pay your bills, support yourself. So you did this throughout the right, uh, throughout the writing of the fine art. Yeah, I did. I worked there for most of the time. Um, and then at some point, I, when, I was, when I was pregnant with my first son, um, and I was almost at the end of the program, I, got, I found a job that was part-time from home. Um, and I, start, I did that for a couple of years, which was just that, was like project management, basically, for a, a local, little local advertising agency, um, so that I could keep working when I had my son and keep writing and stuff. Um, so I sort of bounced around jobs. I mean, I just sort of did jobs for a while for a couple of years. And I just um, quit that job last this past summer when I had my second son just because there was no time. Right. And, is, and your, I, is your husband an artist? My husband is a designer. Yes. He's a graphic designer and a letterpress printer. And he works at the University of Iowa at the School of Art. So he um, is around a fair amount with, with the kids. And he and, – and I mean, you know, I I am able to continue writing and to – you know, go other places to do readings and do all this because my husband, you know, because he's immensely supportive. Um, and because I, you know, he, he pays the bills Yeah. and that like, I, I just, you know, I know how lucky I am and I know how hard it is to strike that balance. But I made right. that work. Well, it's okay. So first of all, find a disgruntled boss who regrets his life choices. <laughs> Secondly, find, find a spouse who find- will support you so financially while you write. Find a spouse who, yeah, who absolutely unconditionally believes in the value of what you're doing, even if you aren't bringing in any money and wants to facilitate your ability to do that. Do you have a, so, do you have a plan to make money? Are you, are you just like, you know what? I don't care if I do or not. I'm just, this is what I'm born to do and I'm going to do it and we'll see what happens. I don't know. I mean, I, I would love to be able to make money. I would love, you know, I would love to teach low residency someday. I love the low residency, pro, the, the low residency model. I think it's great. Um, and there are a lot of good programs and a lot of really talented writers who I think 
can find a home there who may not fit into the traditional MFA program model, which is, I, I think it is a, it's a different animal. It's almost like a completely different animal, at least from my experience, which is only really of one program. Um, but, and you never applied to Iowa? No. That's weird. I never applied to Iowa. I don't know. I grew up here and I just, when I was looking at traditional programs, I just, everything, you know, I wanted to get the hell out of Iowa. So did I, you ever I, see those kids, you ever see those like Iowa students around town? Mm, can you, can you pick them? I out? mean, I don't know how I would identify them. Okay. I was um, going to say, they're not like, they're not like twirling their like handlebar mustaches. <laughs> their or, mustaches. Yeah. And uh, there's a, there's a bar or two where the writers and artists go. So, but, um, do you go there? I mean, I don't go to bars because I go to sleep at nine o'clock. Yeah. Right. You got two kids. <laughs> yeah. Who wake up at five. But, um, but I mean, like the truth is I just happened to be also really lucky in that, in that area because I live in, I, I live in, you know, a UNESCO city of literature. I live in, in one of the only other places besides, you know, big cities where there's a, an incredibly vibrant and supportive and strong literary community and people take it seriously and people, you know, people, writers come here and read and you can attend readings with relatively small crowds for these, you know, just these incredibly incredibly well-known, well-accomplished writers who you may not otherwise have that kind of access to. Who have you seen in Iowa City? Um, I've seen Jane Smiley a whole bunch of times. Um, I saw Michael Cunningham, which is the sort of example I always give because it was this really small, it was just sort of a small crowd. And I think it was a, it was, I know that it was a work week, work day because I went straight from work. Um, and I don't know, there were, you know, I don't know. I mean, it was a decent crowd, but it was not full or overcrowded and he just answered questions and was totally accessible and it was really interesting and um and really fun i saw john irving at, I th- that was a while ago now but um but a lot of great writers come i remember my brother was like just walking i mean you know he was he like went into co- get coffee one day and he's like oh i saw tc boyle was sitting there and that's not totally uncommon even though it's this little tiny town in iowa because he was here to read or you know do an event right um and that's just really lucky. I just I just happen to be lucky to be in a place like that. And I've seen, you know, one of the other one of the probably most exciting things about it is that we have Prairie Lights Bookstore here, and people come there to read. And I've seen um, a couple of faculty members from from grad school who came through when they were on tour. In fact, I went into labor with my first son at my one of my instructor's readings. At you, you you went into labor at the reading. I did. Whoa. I went into labor at the reading. Who was, yeah. re- who was it? Who was reading? It was Elizabeth Crane, Betsy Crane, uh-huh. was reading from her novel. Um, and I sort of was like a little uncomfortable as we got there. And then, and then I started having contractions during her reading. And she was like, going to be in town. And, you know, and I was like, you know, I'd love to hang out and talk more. And I, but I'm in labor. So I have to go. I have to go have a baby. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. And so I'm picturing you live in like a, like a like one of those old like kind of not Victorian but like an old like yellow farmhouse with a big lawn. <laughs> Is that where you live? I um I used to live in an old farmhouse with a big lawn, a, a big huge front lawn, and um, but it, we sold it when we ha- when we our family grew, and now we live in a new house that is that is modeled after a farmhouse and looks kind of like what you're describing, but it's not actually old. Okay. So even better. It's got like, yeah. you got, you got, you're, it's like got all the charm of a, of a farmhouse, but with new plumbing. It really, it does. And wide staircases that are not oh, quite my. so steep. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. It's, be, it's it, terrific. Wow. 
I'm moving to Iowa City. This is what it's like, you know. I'm coming. I'm going to be your neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, come on. It's a great place to be. <laughs> well, it, the, the, yeah, it's, it's affordable. It is totally affordable. So what about, uh, what about comedy? Because you talk about, well, you know, your novel is a comic novel. You talk about having this desire to write comedy from the start. That was always yeah. kind of part of the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it really hard to find funny books. Yeah. Like, like books that, like I always say, like if a book actually makes me laugh out loud, uh, I'll love it forever. And it almost never happens. Like, yeah. I'll think to myself like, oh, that's funny. But if a book actually like makes me make a noise, yeah. that's, a, yeah. that's a rare occurrence. Yeah, I agree. It's hard to do. Um, I mean, it's hard to find books like that. Um, and I, I think maybe that's why I wanted to do it. I don't know. I think also it comes from sort of what I was saying about my experience living in China, which is when I started writing these stories of the things that were happening to me. I, um, what I, what I, my, I mean, I wanted to make my family laugh. I wanted to tell them these stories of me just, just, just to my, like, just never ending humiliation because I know I did not know what I was doing. And I was trying to navigate this country that, um, I just could not, I didn't know what I was doing at all. And so I was just making an ass of myself and all these weird things were happening. And, um, and it was just so much fun for me. Like, give me an when, example. Did you, did you go on any, did you go on any dates with any like native uh, Chinese guys? I didn't go on any dates with any. Um, did, they intera- did you interact a lot with the, uh, the locals? Yeah, I mean, I taught at a university that was a, a national university, um, and so I had you know I had a whole a whole work world that were that was all uh, native Chinese people, and my students were obviously all Chinese, and I. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I lived and worked in that world, and my my apartment was. I just had an apartment. This world of, yeah, I think I had um, Japanese and Japanese people who lived there. But otherwise, it was all Chinese people. All right. Yeah. And yeah. So, like, so what's an example of like a, a letter you wrote home? Like, what's what was one of your embarrassing? <laughs> like, give me an example of a com- a comedic situation right, in which right. Kate DeSherry uh, is sort of the uh, the butt of the joke. You know? Okay. I will give you one. And this has to do a little bit with living in China. It also mainly has to do with just me being an idiot. So it's a little, it's a little bit of both, but, um, probably my most sort of humiliating moment that, that, and actually I think probably was kind of like when I really became a writer was when, um, I, I locked myself out of my apartment. And so, so the apartment where I lived was on the fifth floor of this tenement housing building. And um, the door was this really big, heavy steel door, and it didn't have a doorknob. It just had, you just use the key, right? So if you turn to the left, you lock the bolt. If you turn to the right, you undo the bolt, and you, you can undo the little latch, but there's no knob. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So the key sort of like functions as the knob, too, by you turn a little bit farther to the right, and it undoes the little latch. All right. Okay, so the reason this matters is because I would often not lock my door because you couldn't get in without the key. Um, and so I left for work and I went to work and I taught all day and I went to the gym that day and it was late and I came home and I did not realize the whole day that I had did not have my key. So it was like 10 o'clock and I was locked out and I don't have a phone and I don't speak Mandarin and I don't know anyone. <clears throat> so I went down the stairs to my na- this guy, this, the other English teacher was this Bulgarian guy, George. Um, and I went down to his. Not to be uh, confused with Georgia. Correct. Who I did not know. Okay. Time. Um, and so I knocked on his door and he let me in and it was late and he um, called the university and he, he was married to a Chinese woman and spoke fluent Mandarin. So he was a useful neighbor to have in general. Um, and he called 
the university and they had a maintenance guy come and he, it was like 1030 or something on a, on the, in the middle of the week. And he came and they, we went up to my apartment to try to get me back in and the maintenance guy's working and working. He can't get it. He can't get it. He cannot get this door. It's this like, you know, this huge, heavy steel door. No, not, we cannot, there's no way to undo the lock. So he tell he talks to George and then he leaves and he go and George says, you know, he's going to go down to his bicycle and get, he thinks he's one more tool that might work. And he comes back up just like a few minutes later and he has this, um, this giant, this fucking giant sledgehammer is what he has. And he just <laughs> bashed in the whole wall around the door jam um, until you could just reach in and pop the little lock. So he does that and they're like, okay, but now your door, you have to lock your door. You have to lock it because anyone can just come in and pop it. And if you turn the bolt, it'll be fine. But if you don't, then anyone can just come and open your door. So the next day, and I'm like, yes, of course, of course I will. Of course I'll lock my door. Wait, um, can't someone just reach in through the, the reach in through the wall and unlock it? No, no. So he he just he like he he didn't smash it necessarily all the way through, just all the way around where you could get to the you know the, the apparatus. Oh, okay. You couldn't actually reach in around the side of the door. You could just reach to the little latch, right? Right, like inside the wall. Um, and so the next day, I got home from teaching, and George, my neighbor. Bulgarian guy is sitting on the stairs waiting for me and he's like you know the maintenance guy came to patch that huge hole and he accidentally hit the latch and um and you know you 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 for sure locked the door and when it swung open he so he looked inside and it was just totally ransacked your whole place just like shit everywhere all the drawers were pulled out all the closet was emptied just like dishes everywhere everything from your kitchen was everywhere it was completely pillaged and plundered so the maintenance guy goes down to george's apartment and gets him and they call the police and the police come and they go up to my apartment to try to figure out what happened or who could have gotten in or like what they took you know and george is helping them because he's later going to translate and tell me what's going on and he sees like he sees a little this little pair of earrings my dad had given me on my kitchen table and he sees this wad of money on my desk. And then he sees my laptop on my bed. And he's like, oh, she was not robbed. She just lives in a shithole that <laughs> looks like a scene of a crime. And it is totally disgusting. And he cannot convince the cops that I actually just live like this. And so wait, they, are you a slob? Well, I'm a little bit of a slob. I was totally a slob then when I was living by myself in an apartment in China and not a soul in the world was ever going to come in. Um, I'm, well, I'm, well, except I'm, Giorgio, eventually. You had to clean up your eventually, ass. Eventually, but not, till, not, not, not then, not for a long time. And even then, I probably didn't pick up for him. But um, I'm, less of a, I'm less of a slob now. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I, have, I have, you know, I live with people. I can't be a slob. I can't deal yeah. with this slob. Yeah. I don't understand how people, like, I, I physically don't understand. <laughs> Like, I psychologically don't understand how anybody can do it and like not go crazy. I do. I understand that position, but I, I find a way. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I think I, I, I've said, I think I've said this before on the show. I read something once where like people who can tolerate messes, people whose offices like look like complete disasters, yet they know where everything is. Like those yeah. people uh, tend to test higher on intelligence, you know, and everything else because well, they have like more flexibility of yeah. mind. Whereas the person who's got to have like a pristine desk with like, not like a speck of dust on it. Uh, that person is wound up too tight and is like, sure. a, you know, limited. So you can always use that as a defense of your okay. sloppiness. 
a sign of my intelligence. Yeah, exactly. You're you're a genius. <laughs> not on that day. On that day, I was a criminal, and George could not persuade the cops that he had not been the one to break in. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you don't want to get on the wrong side of the law in China, I would imagine. You certainly do not. No, you do not. I don't know if he. I don't know what had to happen. I couldn't. I couldn't communicate. I was. I was at a loss. Right. So, yeah. So what about uh, just to shift gears, like dramatically? Yes. Sure. <laughs> uh, what about spiritual stuff? Where like where do you fall on all that kind of thing? Um, believe, where do I fall on spiritual yeah, stuff? That, yeah. is, that is a gear shift. Yeah. Are you an atheist? Are you a believer in God? I'm not a believer in God. You're not. No, I'm not. No, no. Daughter, of I, a, daughter of a doctor. Has your dad informed that? He's like you like. Um, yeah, I think my dad has probably informed that. My dad is not a believer in God. Um, and he's a, he's a, um, I was just talking about this last night. He's a, he's read the Bible several times and I would imagine a number of other religious texts. He's, like I said, he's, he is an, he is a, an incredible reader and he's also a, a critical thinker and he comes, he's, he was raised Catholic and his family is Catholic. Um, and he's, he's a very sort of, I mean, he's kind of an understated person. It's just his position. Um, and it's not, it's not an issue in, in any way. Um, and it's totally acceptable and, and as is, as are other positions to him. And I think that probably did give me a sense of, um, it's okay. Yeah. You can, you can think and believe whatever you want and all of it's fine. As long as you do it critically, as long as you're thinking about it. Um, and, and I was not raised religious. My parents were both raised Catholic, but we, my brothers and I were not raised particularly religious. So did you ever feel like you were missing anything? Um, uh, no, I mean, I think, I think there probably is a great, strong sense of community, even uh, probably in, in any, in any religious, I mean, he, here in Iowa City, I know a lot of people kind of know each other from church in the neighborhood and stuff. And that's a strong part of the community. I think that's probably true anywhere in any city of any size. Um, but, um, but I don't, I don't know. I, I suppose I find my, that kind of outlet in my community elsewhere. Like um, you don't feel like you're cut off, like a, or or is it like in any way uncomfortable to admit that you're not a church going person in, in Iowa City? I don't find it uncomfortable to admit I'm not church going. I think having a conversation about atheism can be complicated because it's just so loaded and right. it's so personal. Um, but it's also not. It's I mean, like I think that's another thing. I sort of have followed my dad's example. He's you know he, he's um, and, and my mom as well. Um, they're both. They're both very, um, I don't know, they're sort of quiet, I guess, about their beliefs and think it's personal. And I agree it's personal, um, at least for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, and like the thing, too, is like when you talk about atheism, uh, is it atheism where you're like, you're sure? Or is it just like, I don't know, like, and that's my atheism? Because that's, is that agnosticism? I always that, get, I get confused. Yeah. I mean, I think that's agnosticism. I mean, I, I generally tend to say that I'm an atheist, but I mean... I don't feel sh- I'm sure about hardly anything at all in general in my life. Right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's kind of where I'm. I mean, like, there's definitely not like a paternalistic puppeteer sky god. Right. I, I don't think. But, I, you know, what do I know? I just don't know. I, you know. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just don't know, but I feel like I know what I think, but I don't know. You know, I don't, I, I can't say for sure. 
But that and like that colors. Um, I think that colors a person's comedic sensibility. Just to sort of like now loop it back. Like yeah. Very, very, okay. All right. Just, We're to, just, back. To just artfully loop this back into your into your writing voice. Uh huh. But uh-huh. you know, it's like it can seem like it's not germane, but I really think that it is. I ask this question to people on this show a lot, especially lately, because a it fascinates me, and then b I really do think that um, how a person perceives of the ultimate or whatever you want to call it. Uh, informs their choices artistically and in- informs how they move through the world, you know, sure. in, in like a very central way. So it's like, yeah. it almost seems egregious to not talk about it, you know, in a certain uh, respect. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I definitely think that it certainly colors the way, you know, the way you move through the world. Absolutely. Um, and I think probably that's true. It colors the way the art you make, whatever sort of art you're making as well. Yeah. I mean, like um, Thomas Kincaid was feeling the, he's feeling the Jesus when he's painting yeah. those paintings. You yeah. Know? And like other people, not so much. You not know? so much. Yeah. So, so like, and like, you know, if you're moving through the world as an atheist and you're sort of like thinking to yourself, you know, this is it. Uh, I don't know what the meaning of anything is, if there is any like deeper meaning, you know, because the thing about it is that um, I think it takes courage to be. Uh, an atheist. I feel like there's a lot of comfort to be derived from believing there's like, uh, you know, a higher power looking out for us. And when you, you sort of say, no, probably not like that's That's scarier in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I think that's so funny. I feel, I feel, I feel the opposite. Meaning what? I don't meaning like, you know, um, I feel a lot of comfort in knowing that, um, you know, that we're, that, that I feel like, you know, I don't feel like, I feel like this is my life. I live it how I want. I find, um, I find meaning wherever I find it. That's okay. That's the acceptable place for it to be. You know, I don't feel like, um, I I don't know. I guess I just feel like there's a certain liberty in being this independent organic creature. And I'm not, um, I'm not gonna, uh, you know, it's not my, my eternal soul is not on the line every day, you know, and the choices I make or the things I do or, um, in the way I choose to live, um, it doesn't factor into my decisions about other people. You know, I'm, I, 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 it makes me feel connected to humanity, like on that very basic level rather than on a spiritual level that is very hard for me to conceptualize because I'm not, a, I'm not a religious person. Right. But you never feel um, like envy where it's like, oh man, they get to go have donuts on Sunday and they believe and it's like got to be so comforting. Like I can sometimes find myself feeling, even though I could never go there, uh, yeah. I find myself sort of like, Oh man, like that would be, I, nice I can under, I do understand it, but, um, I don't think that I, I just, so it's so far from the way that I think and the way that I would, I think experience, um, I, I think experience things that, that would require that kind of comfort. Yeah, it's you know, like, it's, it's like, just, how do they do it? I don't understand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, I just, I just can't, I just can't even, um, it's just not the way I think it's not the way it, it works for me. It's yeah. not, it's not the way I would process moments of, you know, needing comfort. I don't think. So, we, be, so when we die, you think it's just over light goes out done. Yeah, I do. And you're, cool, <laughs> and you're cool with that. <laughs> I am. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, I'm cool with that. Yeah. I mean, what, what's our, what other choice you got, right? Yeah, no, exactly. I'm going to rage and against it. I'm, I'm furious. All the more reason to like, you know, make your whatever sort of decisions you want to live the life you want to live. You know, I, I just, um, no, I, I'm, I am cool with it. I am cool with it. I mean, I, I, I have no, you know, who knows how I'll feel 
as I get older, what the, you know, everything changes when you have kids and all that kind of stuff too. But um, yeah, I'm cool with it. Fine. Uh, look at you. <laughs> I don't know. Are you're you not? Are you not cool? You're a stone cold <laughs> atheist. I, I mean, yeah. You don't care. I like it now. I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. I, you know, I do not care. Yeah, I just, no, I'm I fine with it. Yeah, I no, mean, you accept. You're, it you're, totally makes sense to me. You know, I, I'm more comfortable with that because that makes sense to me. Well, it's like when Christopher Hitchens was sick and he was dying. I remember him saying something because he's like the famous atheist. You yeah. Know? But I remember him saying something that really rang true for me where he was like, you know, people are asking him like, oh, now that you're dying, like, aren't you, you changing your tune a little bit? You hoping for an afterlife? And he's like, no, he's like, yeah. I, I don't, you know, this has been such a rich life. Like, this is a, a miracle that I was even here. Like, yeah. I, I don't want more. Like, yeah. the fact yeah. that the, the idea that I would expect, like, oh, this wasn't enough. Now I want like a fluffy white clouds and like a family reunion yeah. and like eternal yeah. life. Seems yeah. like, it seems like obnoxious in light of like how uh, beautiful and uh, just surreal and uh, unbelievable this whole yeah. existence has been. Yeah. So that rang true for me. Like, yeah, you, yeah. wait, you, you had all this, even though life is tough and miserable and like, you know, we, we can all file our grievances. But at the end of the day, like it's a privilege to be able to walk as a sentient being on this planet, Absolutely. I think. And then at the end of it all to be like, yeah, and now I want heaven, motherfucker. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, you know, I seemed, agree. It, and, seems yeah. like, it seems egregious to me. Like, it's like, really? Like, we, that wasn't enough? That wasn't yeah. enough for you? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think that like I don't I agree with I find that to be that that rings true for me too. It resonates for me, but I also think let me just say that I don't think necessarily religious people are like you know people who are who have a strong <laughs> religious sense are did doing paint, it out of greed. Did I paint exactly. them in a did I paint them in a bad way? <laughs> no, I just think that um, I think that it's more you know I think it's comforting and I think it probably in the way that some of the things we're talking about bring true for us, maybe. Um, but I also do, I feel this, I feel that way, which is that this life is rich. And if you, and I, you know, I guess I feel okay with the fact that when we die, the light is out and that's it because, because I, I'm, because I, I want to be and try to be engaged in this life, you know, I think think you're going to continue. That's what I think. (laughs) You continue in your kids. You, you continue in all the people you touch. Like you, life. Like oh is, yeah. You know, like that's yeah. the, that's that's the afterlife. Yeah, that's that's true. That's absolutely true. You know, or in whatever in whatever way that you, I don't know, whatever way that you engage in the world. Right. Ripple, um, the ripple effect. Sure. Yeah. You you step on a butterfly now, and halfway around the world, there's a tornado. <laughs> Yeah. Right. <laughs> and that's my legacy. And that's my legacy. <laughs> well, uh, what a great note to end on. I love how we ended like really deep. Yeah. I know. Or at least like, a, a, like aspiring to really deep, but, uh, yeah. maybe we should have started there. That would have been a weird conversation. I, who knows where it could have gone. Yeah. We, I mean, we could have figured it all out by then, but we'll just have to wait for the next time, I guess. Probably. <laughs> all right, Kate. Well, um, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. I appreciate it. And I congratulate you Thank on, you. uh, your book, which Thanks. is, I think, uh, the, you know, must've felt like the culmination of something like there's all these fuck ups, which is the case yes. for all of us. And then yes. you persevered and now you have, uh, this, this object, this book object that you can, uh, hold up and say, well, I, I alchemized this and made something out of it. That's true. It's very, it's, it's terrific. It's a, it's a very exciting time. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Were you working on anything else? Yeah. I'm working on the next book. Okay. Yes, I am. Any, 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 any hints about what it's about? It's going to be, yeah, well, it's going to be um, not set in an academic setting, but it's going to be, I think, a family, and it's, but comedy for me, all the way. I'm going to write another comedy. All right. All right. Well, I yeah. look forward to it. I congratulate you once more. Thank and, you. And wish you well. 
uh, you know, in the writing, and I wish you well in your life. Thank you, and likewise, it's been a pleasure. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's Kate DeSherry. Her novel is called The Fine Art of Fucking Up. It's available now from Unnamed Press. You can find Kate online at katedesherry.com and on Twitter, where her handle is at katedesherry. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about that app, the free Other People app. Get it at the App Store of your choice, the Other People app. Get that thing. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know your thoughts. Congratulate me on being chosen as a person of 2015. Letters at otherppl.com. So, it was good talking to my mom. Can't believe I've never had her on the show before. I gotta, I gotta, uh, another thing I gotta do, I gotta go see my sister. My little sister had a baby. Gotta go do that. I'm just gonna start to unload all of the uh, family obligations that I've gotten behind on. What else do I need to do? Got another family wedding in Louisiana coming up. For those of you who listen to the program, you know that I go to one of those about every three months. Please remember that Django Reinhardt died of a cerebral hemorrhage while fishing in the Seine and that Ernest Hemingway's entire frontline service in World War I before he was wounded added up to less than one week handing out cigarettes and chocolate at a Red Cross canteen. That's it. Thanks again to Kate DeSherry. Go get the fine art of fucking up. It's her debut novel. Uh, thank you to you, uh, to you guys. Thanks to you guys. Thank you to you guys. <laughs> Thanks to everybody listening. I appreciate it. Uh, hope you'll join me again next week. Thanks to LA Weekly for choosing me as a person of 2015. I appreciate that as well. I am, uh, what am I going to do now? I don't know. I'm going to wait for this song to end. Try to make this seem professional. <laughs>